<laughs> well, hey, as we get started right off the bat, I want to invite you to do the thing. Thanks, Ben. I want to invite you to do the thing that we have been doing each night together, and that is this. If you believe it's possible that the God of the universe may have something specific that he wants you individually to hear, then would you just take five seconds and pray, God, if that's true, I'm open to it, I'm ready, and I'm willing to listen. Go ahead and pray now. God, we love you. Would you get your glory? And everybody said? Amen. Amen. All right. Well, here's what I want to do tonight. I want to pick up where we left off. Remember, we left King Nebuchadnezzar in a spot where he had been, God had caused him to go crazy, like thinking he's a cow for seven years. If you remember this, say, mm-hmm. And remember, we got to this really unique opportunity where we're reading a letter written by King Nebuchadnezzar after all this happens. And I just want to read you the last part of that letter so you can go, oh, that's what happened to that guy. So I'm reading in Daniel chapter 4, and I'm going to start in verse 36. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. Maybe you put a bookmark in it yesterday. When you get there, why don't you whisper a little, yee, yee. Oh, you guys are, Okay. Daniel chapter 4, verse 36. All right, and this is King Nebuchadnezzar talking. Listen to what he says. He says, at the same time that my sanity was restored, this is after seven years, and he comes back to his senses, my honor and my splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, and I want to stop you right here. Do you remember we made that point last night where it seems like he's in this cycle where he would acknowledge God, he would always call him Daniel's God, and then he would fill his life with sin. He would acknowledge God, and then he would live as his own king. Do you remember this? You could think he's doing the same thing, but this one sounds different. Now he's saying, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify, not Daniel's God, the king of heaven, because everything he does is right, and all his ways are just, and he's never said this before, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. King Nebuchadnezzar's talking about humility. Guys, it sounds like now, instead of living his life as the king, thinking he's got it all together, he can do whatever he wants, he can sin, he can be rage and be angry, he can murder people, and then he'll add God in as a helpful accessory every once in a while. Now he's talking about humility. It seems like maybe he has humbled himself and put himself in submission under the one true God. Guys, if that's the case... It looks like wicked King Nebuchadnezzar may have become a believer in God. Is that crazy? And, and as we go through this story, what I want you to know is that King Nebuchadnezzar continues to reign. He ultimately dies. And as we move into chapter 5, it's like the Bible hits the fast forward button. King Nebuchadnezzar has a son. That guy rules for a little bit. A brother-in-law rules for a little bit. Next king, next king. And we flash forward 66 years into the future when we start chapter 5, and we encounter this king named King Belshazzar, and I'll just kind of paraphrase this for you. King Belshazzar was in stark contrast to King Nebuchadnezzar. He knew all the stuff that the living God had done in King Nebuchadnezzar's life, 
And yet he still lived in a way that completely mocked God in full pride. He threw a party for a thousand of his nobles. And you know what he did? He took goblets and these sacred items that were held in the temple of God and handed them out to all these people. And they started drinking their wine and their alcohol in them, having their crazy party with the techno going in the back. You know what I mean? And while they're doing that, they're mocking God because they're like, oh, if this guy is so powerful, well, then why, why is his stuff just our party favors? And then they begin worshiping their little fake gods of gold and silver and all of this kind of stuff. And you can imagine that makes the one true living God not very happy. And he goes, mm, I think I'm going to intervene. And you can read all of chapter 5 on your own. I'm just kind of giving you the cliff notes. But <laughs> basically it says, God supernaturally caused a hand to appear, like not attached to anything, just a hand, and it begins writing a language that the king does not understand, his people do not understand it on the wall, and they just freeze. They're completely terrified. It says this in verse 5, the king, chapter 5, verse 5, if you want to read it, the king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his knees knocked together and his legs gave way. This is like when a cartoon character gets scared. You know what I mean? Like they do the nail-biting thing. (laughs) He's terrified. His face turns pale. And no one understands what this hand is writing. And so obviously he goes to Daniel because Daniel's reputation is that guy through his God, he can interpret this stuff. Daniel does interpret what the hand has wrote for the king. And as you can imagine, it's not good. Basically, this message from God says, You're done, King Belshazzar. You want to live in your pride? Well, I am the one who gives kingdoms and takes away kingdoms. Your kingdom will be taken away from you. And then in chapter 5, verse 30, it tells us that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. So we see this contrast. King Nebuchadnezzar, he lived in pride and anger for a long time in all his sin. But he arrived at a point of humility, and God chose in his grace to restore him. Belshazzar was in absolute pride, did not arrive at humility, and God allowed him to be destroyed. And King Darius, this new king he's taken over, he is the one, do you remember from this morning, I think he went by the beast, do you remember this? That's this guy in the Bible. And so King Darius knows everything about Daniel. It seems like He respects Daniel, or the beast respects and enjoys Darlene, right? It's it's all lining up. But no one else, these leaders that work for him, they're not very excited. In fact, they're very jealous of Daniel's high position and his favor, and they don't like his integrity and his character and his work ethic, and they want him dead and gone. And so they make a plan that will get him out of there. And it's a very unique plan because they realize Daniel hasn't done anything that we can catch him in the act and he's going to be in trouble. He's such an upright guy. If there's any way we're going to get this guy out of here, we're going to have to make some part of his religion illegal and that's what we're going to trap him in. In verse 5 of chapter 6, it says, we will never find any basis for charges against this man Daniel unless it has something to do with the laws of his God. And so in verse 7, it says that they do just that. They issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or man during the next 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Raise your hand if you've heard this story before. Yeah, you have. But there's, there's such 
intense stuff in here and some nerd stuff that I want to give you that if this if it's something that you're like, oh yeah, I know, I encourage you to just challenge yourself and go, I'm going to listen with fresh ears. Because maybe the last time you heard this, you were a cute little tiny chubby-faced baby and you just learned it the baby way and now you need to learn it the in-depth way. Okay? If you're down, say, oh. Oh, good. This is great. <sighs> All right. Well, when you picture Daniel, how do you picture him? Super buff? Yeah, someone said sweet, kind man. That's great. But remember, I said that the Bible in chapter 5 hit the fast, fast forward button. If Daniel was around 17 when we met Nebuchadnezzar back in chapter 1 in 605 BC, that would make him 83 years old. This wasn't Daniel the boy in the lion's den. This is grandpa in the lion's den. Like, for real. Do you know what I'm saying? So this decree has been ordered. The king's like, he's not thinking about Daniel. He doesn't realize the trap that these people are trying to set for him. And he's like, hmm, people have to pray to only me for 30 days? That makes me sound awesome. I am definitely in. So he signs a decree. And the way that their laws worked, once a decree was signed, you couldn't change it. That was it. Period. The king has to roll with this for 30 days. And as soon as it's signed, guess what those people do? They run over, they find Daniel praying, obviously, and they go, oh, perfect, our plan worked, we got him. They arrest him, they bring him back to the king, and they go, just like they said this morning, <laughs> we got your first offender. And the king's super grieved. He's like, what? No, I love Daniel. This isn't supposed to happen. He realizes the wrongdoing of his people, but he can't change it. And in verse 16, even though the king doesn't want to, he has to. This is what it says. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, may your God, whom you serve, continually rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles, so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without entertainment, because, or without entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. So they wheel 83-year-old Grandpa Daniel in his wheelchair to the lion's den, and he's like, no, please, and they just dump him. And he's like, oh, my frail bone. That's probably way different than you picked it, but that is age accurate, right? And what I want you to realize and notice right now is that you know what would have been obvious to all the people that maybe you and I have not thought about in the story of Daniel and the lion's den? There is no way this 83-year-old man is going to defend himself, protect himself against the den of hungry lions. He holds a 0% chance on his own, of making it out of there alive. Do you, do you get what I'm saying? Doesn't this sound a lot like what we were talking about last night with our sin? We are completely hopeless. We are separated from God. We deserve punishment. Sin overrides. Sin grows. Sin is more powerful than us. We don't stand a chance. Daniel does not stand a chance unless, by some miraculous event, he is rescued. And I know you know the story, but read this with me. In verse 19, it says, At the first light of dawn... The king got up and he hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? I wonder what percentage he thought he would get an answer. One percent, maybe? I can't imagine how relieved and excited and like, oh my gosh, he would have been when Daniel answered. Oh king, live forever! Or it probably would have sounded like this. Oh, king, live for a... <coughs> my, my God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. Uh, my weird brain has some thoughts on this, okay? 
I don't, we're not told how it went. I picture like a buff angel, you know, and he, he goes up to the lines. He's like, you bad kitty cats, you better, you better not get any ideas. And he grabs them by the mouth and he squishes their top and bottom jaw. And he's like, no. And they're like, you know what I mean? We don't know exactly how it happened. It was a miracle. There's an angel involved for crying out loud. And Daniel says of the event, they have not hurt me. Because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done any wrong before you, O king. And the king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king is so excited that he issues a decree. Listen to this. This is verse 25 of chapter 6. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language throughout the land. May you greatly prosper. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. This was the prophecy of the tree. It's happening. His dominion will never end. I underlined this next line in my Bible. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. You may already see it and where we're going tonight, but it's not just an analogy, it's a foreshadowing that God orchestrated history in this way for people to see exactly what we're talking about tonight. Just like Daniel had zero chance against these hungry lions, just like Daniel's physical death was imminent, this is a foreshadowing to something greater. When God wouldn't just rescue one person from their physical death, but God, in a miraculous act of gracious love, would offer eternal rescue to his people from spiritual death. And not one person, but that offer would be made to an infinite number of people. So much more lavish, so much more extravagant, such a bigger act of love offered to all of humanity. Guys, what am I talking about? The book of Daniel, the, the story of Daniel Lines, Dan, points or foreshadows to the gospel, to the good news of Jesus Christ. And when I said that, if you're honest, some of you are in here, and your eyes not might have done it, but mentally you rolled your eyes. Oh, we're talking about the gospel. But just like we knew this story, and there's some other things in there, guys, I challenge you, there may be aspects to what Jesus did on our behalf that you haven't fully thought through. So if you're a longtime Christian, I invite you. Listen to some of these things. Let them click in ways that they haven't in the past. And if you have never put your faith in Christ and never accepted his forgiveness, please listen with intent ears because this is the most important message you could ever hear. This is the first thing that I want to give you. I don't know if you've ever consciously asked this question, but I remember wondering this as a little kid. Okay, I get that God loves me, and I get that he wanted to offer rescue to my eternal sin problem. But why did it take a bearded man dying on the cross 2,000 years ago? Like, why is that the thing that allowed God to rescue me? And what I want to tell you tonight is that the gospel, what Jesus did on our behalf, actually makes sense. It's the only thing that makes sense. And, and a lot of people would look at me and go, wait, 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 what are you talking about with the junior hires tonight? And they would go, you're crazy, man. But I, I think you've heard this from multiple people here. What we don't just think about you, but we know about you, is that you are capable, that you are intelligent, and that to withhold any of this stuff from you would just be mean. And so I invite you 
to use your brain and follow with me, okay? Here's the first reason it took a bearded man 2,000 years ago to die on a cross to actually solve our sin problem. The first one is that our rescuer had to be fully man. If Romans 6.23 is true that says the wages of sin is death, the punishment of our sin is death, then someone would have to be able to die for us in our place. And if our sin solution was just God, well, God's invincible. He can't just die. It had to be fully man. And we know from reading in the New Testament that Jesus was fully man. He experienced every emotion, anger, happiness, righteous anger, I should say, joy, sadness, all these different things. He felt pain, and he was capable of dying. Our, our rescuer had to be fully man. Our rescuer also uniquely, though, had to be fully sinless, someone who did not have their own punishment coming, so that they could take our punishment and substitute themselves in our place. Our rescuer would also have to be fully God. Because God in his nature is infinite. And if he wasn't, if he was just one person, and he, uh, he satisfied these other criteria, he could only save one person. But if God is infinite, and somehow exists in a form where he's fully man, fully sinless, fully God, now he can save and offer salvation to an infinite number of people. Like, this actually makes sense. But if Jesus was just those things, great, he qualifies. He could be the solution to our sin problem. But if he didn't give a rip about you or me, we're still stuck forever. The fourth criteria that he would have to satisfy is that he would have to love us so much that he would be willing to lay down his life to be our solution. And guys, the reason I'm telling you this nerd stuff is because you have to hear this loud and clear. This is why only Jesus Christ can solve your sin problem. This is why you can't try hard enough to be a better person because you don't meet these criteria. This is why Buddha can't save you. Mohammed can't save you. No other religion can save you. The only right combination of everything we need in a Savior has only ever happened in Jesus. And a lot of people listen to that and they go, that sounds really intolerant and really narrow-minded. And I, I want to prove to you that it's the exact opposite. Maybe you've heard this analogy before, but I want you to imagine that if I got up here with tears in my eyes and I told you, guys, I, I'm in like the end stages of this cancer that there is no cure for. Like, there's nothing I can do, I'm done. And mid-sentence, if those back doors burst open and a, and a research scientist busts in in a white lab coat and they said, hold on, we just this second, we, we made a cure for your cancer. There was no cure and now there is a cure. How insane would this be? If I looked at that and I went, wait, 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 you're saying there's only one cure? Is that, is that yellow? No, 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 I'm not taking anything unless you give me five different options. I want a bubblegum flavor. I want blue. I want purple. I want red. There's only one option. You're so narrow-minded and intolerant. Get out. Would I do that? No. I would be so amazed that there was no way. I was dead in my tracks, absolutely stuck, and someone graciously worked to make a way for me when there was no way? The God of the Bible is not intolerant and narrow-minded. He is the most lavishly gracious being who has ever existed. He gave us a way out of our eternal sin problem when there was no way. And what I want to do now is just tell you the extent to which, to which God went to offer rescue from our eternal sin problem. You have probably heard that Jesus died on the cross. And guys, I'm about to tell you some graphic stuff of what actually happened to him. And I want to tell you on the onset, my goal is not to make you cry. I'm not trying to get emotion out of you, but I firmly believe that if you are going to accurately respond to what God did for you, 
You have to accurately understand the depth of your sin, which we did last night, and you have to accurately understand the extent of the price that was paid for you. So I'm going to turn to Matthew chapter 27. We're going to read what Jesus did to rescue us as God rescued Daniel from the lion's den. This is Matthew chapter 27, verse 26. It's just the second half of this little verse, and all it says is that Jesus was flogged and then handed over to be crucified. I skipped that word for years because I was just like, oh, yeah, he got whipped. But when I came to understand the extent of pain that Jesus went through on my behalf before he even made it to the cross, I was dumbfounded, you guys. There are doctors who have written medical articles on exactly what Jesus experienced, and they recount that flogging back then would have meant that Jesus would have his back and legs exposed. He would have had his arms tied to a post above his head in front of him. And a Roman legionnaire stood behind him with a cat of nine tails, which was this torture device, this handle that had strips of leather hanging off of it, multiple. And at the end of some of those strips of leather were tied heavy lead balls, and other ones had sharp, jagged shards of bone hanging off of them. And this Roman legionnaire, who was a professional in the art of torture and execution, with the full force of his body weight, would have come down with a full swing, hitting the top of Jesus' shoulders, that lead ball hitting first, knocking the wind out of him, causing deep tissue bruises of blues and yellows and purples, and then that lighter shard of bone following after mid-swing, hitting at the top of his body and scraping with those jagged spikes in the middle all the way down, literally peeling ribbons of skin off of his body. There are many historical accounts of people being whipped like this and their, their rib bones being exposed to the air as a result. 39 times Jesus was whipped like this. Because the Roman legionnaires understood they were so consistent in their torture that one more lash, 40 lashes, would kill him. And they didn't want to kill him. They wanted to beat him within an inch of his life. This is what he experienced for you and for me before he even got to the cross. In verse 27, it tells us that the governor's soldiers then took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. A company of soldiers was 200 full-grown men skilled at the art of war who not only didn't respect Jesus, but were excited to mock and torture him more. We're told in the following verses that they struck him over and over again, that they made a crown of thorns with long thorns, and they, they buried those thorns into his head. Now he's bleeding profusely from his head. They spit on him. They said, prophesy, Lord, who is it that hit you? And in this process, they took a robe, and as his blood was beginning to coagulate on his back, they placed that robe on him. And at the end of all of their mockery and torture, they then took that robe and ripped it off causing the blood coagulated into the robe to rip with it all of those wounds freshened and bleeding again. In these later verses, verse 32, we see Jesus is made to carry the cross member of his cross now through the streets of Jerusalem with crowds now jeering at him, spitting at him, mocking at him, and he is so overwhelmed by everything that he has gone through that he collapses and the, and the Roman soldiers force someone else to pick up his cross and carry it for him. And ultimately, they lead him outside the town to this place called Golgotha, which was an execution site. And it meant the place of the skull. When he got there, Roman soldiers had wooden hammers and something like a railroad spike. And they would press and find the indentation, a pressure point, a bundle of nerves between those two bones in your wrist. 
And over and over and over again, they drove that nail until it attached him between those bones to the cross. And then they pulled his other arm and stretched that one out. They pointed both of his toes, the toes of his feet straight down and drove a nail through there. Now, his full body weight, hanging by pressure points on the cross, sending searing pain throughout his entire body. And they purposely positioned him in such a way that his lungs would not be able to expand so that he could get a breath. In order to breathe, you had to pull yourself up with all your weight bearing down on those nails in your body take a breath, but you couldn't stay there long because of the agonizing pain, and then he would slide back down. And sliding up and down over and over again with his raw, wounded back scraping against the rough, coarse wood of the cross, all of this by design for his torture and death. And Jesus didn't die from blood loss, and he didn't die from pain, We know that he died from asphyxiation, from suffocating, because he couldn't get up that last time to take that breath. But with his last breath, we know in the Bible in John 19 that he uttered this phrase. In his language, he said, Tetelestai, which means it is finished. It was also a banker's term. You can interpret it a different way. It means paid in full. The debt, the punishment, the consequence of our sin at that moment had been fully paid, fully resolved. Now, forgiveness and rescue for the first time in all of history had become an option for you and for me. And guys, the saddest part of this is not that someone was crucified. People were crucified historically all the time. It was terrible. But the thing that makes this so monumentous is that the God of the universe, the highest being, the one who deserves all glory and all splendor and all worship in all of his power, chose, as it describes in Philippians 2, to humble himself not just to a man, but even to the point of death, it says. He came that far because that is the extent to which that he loves you. If you have ever doubted that God loves you, He did this not just to solve your sin problem, but because, I mean, it says it in John chapter 15, verse 13. Jesus is talking and he says, man has no greater love than this, that he lay down his life for his friend. God looked at you drowning in your sin, knowing there's nothing you and I could do. We are fully hopeless. And he said, I love you too much to leave you there. If sacrificing one's life is the highest way to communicate love for another, then I do that for you, and I solve your sin problem in the meantime. And guys, the reason that as Christians we call this good news, like, like that sounds heinous, right? This is terrible. But we call it good news not just because of Easter. We know that Jesus rose again from the grave three days later, but even because of what was taking place on that night. In John chapter 10, verse 18, before Jesus goes to the cross, oh, I get pumped on this. He said, No one takes my life from me, but it is I who have the authority to lay it down, and it is I who pick it back up again. No one got the best of him. This doesn't prove God in his weakness. He wasn't conquered. He showed up willingly, voluntarily, and said, I know what it's going to take to forgive you. I know how terrible it's going to be, and I love you so much I choose it anyway. He said that before he went to the cross. And I want to give you maybe a piece of Jesus' death that you haven't thought about in a while. This is Matthew 27 verse 51. Because see, at that moment that Jesus died, everyone who witnessed it would have understood beyond a shadow of a doubt 
This was not someone who bad guys got the best of. They will say, surely this was the Son of God. Verse 51, it says, at that moment, the moment Jesus died, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. The tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. Verse 54 says, when the centurion and those who were with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. This is good news because it was obvious that he was God. He did what he came to do. He accomplished on our behalf what he intended to accomplish. And when in this moment, when the tombs broke open, in three days when he rose from the grave, do you know what he did? He proved that he could bring dead things back to life. Guys, last night we established firmly that you and I, apart from Jesus, we are spiritually dead in our sins. This means that all the consequence, all the guilt, all the shame, all the separation, all the punishment that I bear on my shoulders alone that is weighing me down, causing me to drown and suffocate, that I will take with me to judgment to the end of my life, now that can be lifted off my shoulders. And in its place, by Jesus' grace, I can have his peace. I can have his love. I can be in relationship with him. He offers me heaven in the future. Like, and it's a free gift. It's his grace. It's insane. That's why this is good news, because the impossible was accomplished on our behalf. A miraculous rescue is not guaranteed. It's offered. And guys, some of us are here, and we have never in our life asked Jesus to forgive our sins. We have never said, I lay down my life, I surrender, and I invite you to be king of my life. Because, guys, remember the way that this works, what we've talked through in building this whole entire week, is that God doesn't settle for acknowledging him and then filling our life with sin, acknowledging him and then living as our own king. He is the only true good king. And if we want to respond accurately to the invitation he gives us, that means I keep no corner of my life that I remain the king. I choose full surrender and go, God, I know I make a lousy king. I surrender every piece of me to you. And this doesn't mean perfection. It means obedience. And obedience is amazing because it's possible. When I'm loving God and living rightly, I'm obeying. But even when I sin, I can in an instant turn it around and go, God, I was disobeying. I want to obey and I can turn disobedience into obedience right away. That's what surrender to him looks like. That's what response to the gospel look like. And so guys, all that to say, some of you are here and you still carry the weight and burden of your sin, shame, and guilt. And if you would like to accept Jesus' forgiveness and enter a relationship with him, I, I just want to give you a clear opportunity to do that tonight. Here's what it's going to look like. If you've never done this and you want to for the very first time, do it. I'm going to invite you in a moment to stand up. And it's not to embarrass you. It's not to make you do something scary. It's because I firmly believe if God is calling your heart and you feel convicted right now, if you can't stand in a room of Christians who will be excited for you, then you're probably not ready to go home and live this faith for real, right? But if you are ready to respond to Jesus' rescue from your sin, I'm going to invite you to stand in one, two, three. Three. Mm. Guys, that's pretty awesome. 
The Bible says in Luke chapter 15, 10, that the angels rejoice in heaven at the thought that anyone here just went from death to life, from carrying the burden of your own sin to him taking it off and you having eternity in heaven with him. You can go ahead and take a seat. Guys, I want to talk to another group of you. There are some of us here who you have already accepted Jesus. Maybe it was last year or 10 years ago or or whatever. You already know who he is. You already accepted his forgiveness. But if you're honest with yourself, you have been living more like King Nebuchadnezzar in his wicked days than a Christ follower. You acknowledge God and you fill your life with sin. And what you need to do in that case, if you're willing, is not accept his forgiveness for the first time all over again. The Bible calls it repenting. It's to make a conscious decision to turn from a life of sin the way that you've been living and say, I'm going, I know all this, but I've had my heart hardened, I've been living in sin, and I'm done. I'm coming back. I'm going to live in obedience to him. And guys, if that's you, I'm I'm not going to ask you to stand. I'm just going to encourage. I think Harrison's going to tell us about something in a minute, but we're going to have an opportunity to have some conversations in this chapel. And I'm just saying, guys, if God has done something in your heart tonight, you should tell somebody. God didn't call us to do this life alone. He gave us each other as a gift to walk alongside, to encourage, to pray, to help. Man, you have people in this room who would love to be that for you. But let me do this. I just I want to pray for you, and then we'll have the band come up. We'll do one last song, and then Harry will tell you what we're doing after that. Let's pray. God, we love you. And tonight we just acknowledge the truth of how lavishly you love us. God, in Romans 5.8, you say that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We did nothing except betray you and sin against you, and you still in your grace chose to love us. God, thank you for making a way. Thank you for rescuing us when there was no way. Would you get glory not just from tonight, God, as we try to continue to walk in faith and live in relationship with you, God, I ask that you would get glory from healthy relationships with you a week from now, a month from now, a decade from now. Thank you for these students and what you're doing in their lives. We love you and we surrender tonight to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.